queer students biggest enemy in school is not a singular homophobic bully. It is a very normative culture of every kid saying that's okay. It is the normative culture of only ever reading about men and women as as partners. It's the way that teachers ass always assume that they're going to want to date someone of the opposite gender. So the the bigger struggle for being a queer kid in school is not just like one kid who we can label as homophobic and say he's got to be fixed. It's, you know, a whole system of people with good intentions who aren't realizing that they're enforcing these stereotypes constantly. Welcome to Invitations to Listen, where we amplify stories of learning. Let's go behind the scenes, one story at a time, and learn alongside each other. I'm Summer Johnson. And I'm Nishi Langhorn, and you are invited to listen to today's story of learning. All right, so we are super excited to welcome our um, interviewee today, Molly Safran, a social studies teacher from Fairfax High School. And this is really exciting um, conversation that we get to have today because Molly has been so much a part of my learning journey and my learning story around learning about queer pedagogy. And she has helped to coach me in ways that I could disrupt heterosexism and when I'm leading professional learning and with my team. So it's really exciting to, to have her here with us today. So welcome, Molly. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. This is my very first podcast. Okay. Well, we're happy to be here for your <laughs> inaugural experience and yeah. do more about what you've been learning and how you've been um, impacting those around you. So go, why don't you just go ahead and give us like some of your background or tell us a little bit about your story and then we'll get into some more queer pedagogy. Yeah, I'm a uh, social studies teacher right now. I work with world history students and um, I've always been doing like an elective. So right now it's sociology. But before I came to this school and started doing social studies, I was an English teacher, high school English teacher. And then I also did my student teaching and my first long-term sub job in a um, like an upper elementary classroom where you do reading, writing, and social studies. And so I think that that background I have with like a several different fields, even though they're all in the humanities, sort of practicing thinking about teaching in different subject areas is what has me um, really curious about diving into the ways that pedagogy can be shared across different curriculums and, and working with people in different departments to think about how can we can sort of be thinking about these complex issues about identity or about power from many different angles with our students. That's such a unique experience to be able to have those different levels and different content areas. So that, that's really exciting to have your lens um, when you're sharing more about this. So could you give us like an overview when we, when we talk about queer pedagogy? Um, what do we mean? Yeah. Um, so first, I guess we should probably just talk about the word queer because I'm not sure what the background is going to be of people who who maybe are listening. So um, the word queer may, has been used as a slur in the past. And over time, a lot of LGBTQ activists have um, sort of 
reclaimed that word, especially with the we're here, we're queer, get used to it movement. So through a lot of activism and through a lot of scholarship, the word queer has been sort of reclaimed as something that people can use to study power structures and how power is used to other people. So like how is the way society is set up and how is the power that certain people have used to make people be in situations of privilege or situations in which they're treated worse. So when we use the word queer, we're sort of referencing the um, like literature of queer theory that a lot of people use, but it doesn't necessarily just mean like gay, right? It doesn't just mean LGBTQ. So when we talk about queer, I like, um, I have a quote here that I like from Kevin Kumashiro. Uh, he talks about queer as a verb. And he says that it's the ways in which we can disrupt and challenge these normative understandings of what it means to be or to exist or even to know. So if queer is us imagining that we can disrupt what's normal and imagine new ways, queer pedagogy is about letting students have these opportunities to uncover how um, power has been used to make people be treated differently and also how we can imagine uh, identities outside of this. So it it can be connected to what we think about when we think about LGBTQ inclusion, um, but they're not definitely not the same. It doesn't even have to be about um, LGBTQ people. It's really about giving the students opportunities to think about these power structures and, and how they have created the world we live in. Thank you for enlightening us because that, that's a whole different understanding. And as a former high school English teacher myself, it also makes me think about the power of language and how you, you use the word reclaimed. We reclaimed the word queer and you kind of took it from something that was negative, a slur, and you turned it into something that's disruptive and empowering and a verb, which is all about action. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I feel like I need that quote too. I need to have that in in a prominent place. Um, but I, I appreciate that, and I think that it's it's been as much as we talk about LGBTQIA like inclusion. That word has always been a little troubling to folks. And um, myself, as a queer person, I remember the first time I heard people saying that. I think I was like fifteen, and I was like, "What? No, no, that's not. We can't." And I was uncomfortable. But then I realized, like, yes, I'm so down for this for this word because it does have that verb around it. Does it have that action um, to it? So I, th yeah, I think I like that um, you both were able to connect to it and understand it. Sometimes when I'm talking, I'm like, am I being accessible? Like that's, that's one of the key areas I'm trying to work in. When I got into doing my research, I'm at, um, I'm at George Mason right now studying critical pedagogies. And a lot of my work has been focusing on queer pedagogies. And what I've been finding is that there are people who are researching this at the graduate level. Absolutely. And then there are a few people, like honestly, maybe like seven who are talking about it in the K through 12 setting. But a lot of them are sort of writing and talking within these very theory heavy areas, thinking about the scholarship around queer pedagogy, but there's not a lot out there that's directed at teachers or instructional leaders or principals for them to understand what it's about. So you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of help bridge that gap a little bit between theory and practice and help teachers see like, okay, when you explain what queer means to me, that sounds like something I would 
support my students in doing, and then actually taking those next steps to see what it looks like in, in different classrooms. So I'm happy that I at least did a good job um, with y'all and my definitions. Well, I, and I know, like, because I've, like I said, I've had that connection with you and, and it's been part of my learning story too. And I've seen you facilitate some of that um, professional learning with teachers and you, and you really start with like the alphabet, we, you know, the, the queer alphabet, LGBTQIA, and, and to also talk about ways that heterosexism shows up and what it looks like to actually disrupt some of those. So I'm wondering if you could take us through kind of how you take some of that scholarship and some of what you've been learning and how you translate that to, to, to teachers who work in classroom settings. Yeah, I think that like you're talking about with um, heterosexism and heteronormativity, these are the ways that our society makes it so that being straight or being cis, which means um, that the gender you identify with is the same as the sex you were assigned at birth, that those ways of being are assumed to be the normal. And so anytime that you um, diverge from that in any way, it's noticeably different. You, you're being othered. And so helping teachers to notice the ways that they are a part of that is a really good way to help them understand how they can maybe help to disrupt it or why it's important to disrupt it. So a few examples would be like, um, you know, if you have a boy and a girl bathroom pass, I know that's something that a lot of people already are kind of talking about and trying to get rid of, but just this idea of, you have one girl pass and one boy pass is assuming that every kid fits into those categories when it would be just as easy to have two bathroom passes or even just one bathroom pass, not having to have the kids sort of declare their gender in that way every time they go out. Um, another thing I've noticed is that a lot of teachers like to build relationships with their kids. That's something they want to do and, and should do, right? We all know that's good practice. But I've had a lot of times where I've observed a kid like getting excited, talking about um, like prom or something coming up. And a student will ask, a teacher will ask a boy student like, oh, are you going to ask any girls? This is just this small way that it's assuming that every boy would go to prom with a girl or every girl would want to go to prom with a boy that doesn't let kids imagine sort of a separate way of being. And if the student already knows that's what they want, like if it's a boy student who knows he wishes he could ask a boy, it then puts him in the scenario of having to choose. Am I going to out myself right now? Am I going to have to other myself by saying, well, no, I'd rather ask a boy. And so when we do this constantly, even though they're all these small things, it just keeps spreading the message over and over again that like straight is the normal and anything else is other or is different. And so helping teachers. Um, I kind of give those sort of examples to start to notice the ways they might be doing that, I think has had um, a good effect on them being like, oh, shoot, like this is this is something that I'm a part of, even though I know I'm not homophobic. And that's one of the things that um, is really important about queer pedagogy is that it looks beyond the homophobic as the enemy. I think that for a lot of us, when we're thinking about like, what's the purpose of um, being more inclusive for queer students or like what, what is the worst thing that, that queer kids are facing? I think that there's a lot of people who think the answer is a homophobic person. And when you assume that, it's very easy to be like, well, I'm not homophobic and to separate yourself from that. It's a very individualistic way of looking at a problem that's societal. 
And so when we can help teachers see that queer students' biggest enemy in school is not a singular homophobic bully. It is a very normative culture of every kid saying that's so gay. It is the normative culture of only ever reading about men and women as, as partners. It's the way that teachers always assume that they're going to want to date someone of the opposite gender. So the, the bigger struggle for being a queer kid in school is not just like one kid who we can label as homophobic and say, he's got to be fixed. It's, you know, a whole system of people with good intentions who aren't realizing that they're enforcing these stereotypes constantly. And so in the PD, like I said, I try to like sort of give some of those examples and give them some space to think about ways that they've maybe been um, part of that and part of having enforced, you know, heteronormativity. And one of the things I always do is say like, I've done it too. I, um, you know, like I'm a queer person, but, but I was raised in the same environment as y'all. And so I have all these expectations too, that I've been used to my whole life. I saw, I was selling tickets at a football game and I saw a girl run in with like the biggest decorated box. She was like, it said like, are you going to, will you go to prom with me? Like, it was so cute. She was so excited. And I said, I hope he says yes. And then, you know, in right in that moment, I was like, what, (laughs) why did I assume that this kiddo was going to ask a boy to prom? Right. And so, um, I like to tell that story to teachers as a reminder that no one's calling you a bad person when we say this is happening. But what we're asking you to do is start noticing it's happening, being more aware so that we can start trying to get rid of it together. Molly, I'm really connecting to the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram Kendi. And he talks about this same idea that, you know, people will be like, I'm not a racist, I, you know, and, and they'll kind of get defensive. But really, and, and he says in the book that he there are times when he acts in racist ways and it's not about the person, but it's about the behavior and what you're describing are microaggressions, right? That we're not even aware of that are so uh, ingrained in us because of the society that we live in, because it is so heteronormative that we make these comments without even realizing the impact that they're having. So it sounds like the impact that you're having with these teachers is so powerful because you're helping them to see, you know, the, the, what's underneath the surface, these microaggressions that, that we, that we share without even realizing what we're doing. I'm curious, it sounds like you've done a lot of really important work with teachers. I'm curious, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered with, with teachers as you're trying to kind of shift thinking? So I think there's a two-pronged answer here. The first is that I do think that jumping into queer pedagogy is a place where teachers who already have some basic understanding of um, like LGBTQ issues are ready to go. And, you know, there are some teachers who just aren't there yet. And so I try to advertise these sessions as like, this is for people who maybe are already like comfortable with using students' pronouns correctly in classroom. Like they're past those like basic stages. And I've found that um, 
even when teachers are self-selecting and saying like, this is where I'm at, we still are not always eye to eye about what that should look like. So I've had teachers come in and they truly feel like they're like this great ally. They're ready to dive in really deeply. Um, And then I'm realizing, oh no, my session is starting here and they're way back there. And so having to try and like backpedal and figure out where people are at to get us to a good place where actual learning is happening, that can be sort of a tricky spot when you're doing. And I think anyone who's doing um, sort of social justice work is, is running into that. There's also a lot of space in that conversation to acknowledge that like we can't constantly be working towards people who are at the back, which is why I try to offer these sessions. I'm like, you know, this isn't about convincing someone to let a kid use their pronouns. Like we're all on board with that. This is me helping you go to the next level. But there definitely still can be a disconnect between where people think they are um, and where I want to get them. And so trying to figure out how to scaffold that up is definitely difficult. The other thing that I think is really tricky about what I'm talking about with queer pedagogy is that it's not the same thing as LGBTQ inclusion. And so I'll define um, the two of those and talk about what the difference is there. So LGBTQ inclusion is basically saying, let's try to include lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, LGBTQ, intersex, and asexual plus people um, and their narratives into our lessons. And that's not what queer pedagogy is. Queer pedagogy is saying, let's create lessons and opportunities for students to interrogate the power structures that have created these othering identities. So I'll do two examples for you from a history class. So I might include in my elementary class um, that Sally Ride is the first openly gay person to to be an astronaut. That is me including a queer perspective. The kids will say, hey, that's a person who's gay. They're in the curriculum. I included them. Um, If I am a U.S. history teacher and I teach about the Red Scare, which is, um, you know, the McCarthyism of anti-communists in the 50s. If I wanted to include more queer perspectives there, I could add the Lavender Scare, which was happening at the same time, but was specifically targeting LGBTQ people. And so what I've done is I've taken my regular curriculum and I've started to include or add on these queer perspectives. Now, that's not the same as queering my pedagogy, because like we sort of talked about with our definitions earlier, queer pedagogy is this verb that asks us to be disrupting our understandings of what it means to be normal. So by me saying Sally Ride was a lesbian, I am really just reasserting that there's something different about her because of her sexuality, as opposed to maybe helping dissolve the idea that sexual identity has to be an othering thing. So an example of a queer pedagogy lesson would be if we were studying, um, I've done this lesson where we studied family kinship systems in ancient Sparta and ancient Athens. And what the students do is they first have to learn what the word kinship means, which basically is just like the close bonds that are important to us. And then they study how in Athens, the kinship structure was basically like family even though 
you know, they didn't act like a family like we do. The the mom would never really talk to the dad. He would always be in town talking to the other citizens. But then they look at Sparta, which doesn't have anything that resembles a family. They're seeing how in Sparta, all of the men from the ages like seven and up live in a completely separate area. And all the women and children are living in these mess groups and eating together in these large community groups. There's no identifiable family structure like we're used to. And from that, the students are able to sort of analyze how this idea of family they have from now hasn't always existed. And so if we can start to understand like, okay, things like family or relationship or marriage, all these things have been created and can change in different times and places, then we can start interrogating why is our idea of family today look one way? Why do we always imagine family to have to be one mom and one dad and the kids? And that's where they can start to sort of queer their idea of family and, and be a little bit more open-minded about different families today. The difficulty is that um, most people really focus on that inclusion. And they say, hey, well, I added six gay people to my U.S. history curriculum. Isn't that enough? And and I would argue that it's not. It It is what students say they want. They want to see representation. And for that reason, it can be really good that they're being represented in a curriculum that's so hyper-focused on individuals. But at the same time, it's not helping them understand that these categories of gay or transgender didn't even exist 200 years ago. And so helping them to see that can actually broaden their minds a little bit more for today and be more open to thinking about different identities today in 2022. And that's schooled. I mean, that's social studies, right? I mean, like breaking it down and being able to see patterns like that and being able to look at them critically um, and, and think about it and examine like where we are today. I think that was always my favorite part about being a social studies teacher is to think about these are the things that exist today. These are the stories that are in the news. What what led up to this, right? Like, what is that cause and effect? What has contributed to our, our language, our society, um, all of that? And I think it's the way that you start with that question of heteronormativity. And it makes me, again, think about Nietzsche's connection with Ibram Kendi and that idea that, like, now I'm understanding racism, I'm understanding microaggressions, and I'm, I'm like, dripping, I'm soaking wet in this. Um, and so you start to interrogate and you start to disrupt your own thinking and, and, to, and to think about um, those assumptions that, that you're making. It also makes me think about the the skills that you're fostering in this process. I mean, the critical thinking skills, the empathy skills, the collaboration, the creative thinking, the conceptual, being able to look at a, a theme like kinship or family across centuries and being able to understand it, you know, and, and really interrogate it. There are so many other skills that are being fostered through, through the queer pedagogy that, and I could see as a teacher participating in one of your professional learning opportunities, how valuable this would be for any subject area, for any grade level to take these concepts and apply them to elementary school science or high school math, or, you know, it's all about critical thinking and challenging status quo. Yeah. And I do actually try to like make that really explicit for people who come to a PD, because I agree with you that when you hear it, you're like, Oh, I could apply this to anything, but sometimes that's hard. Like on PD days, our brains are kind of 
if you're at your last session, our brains are a little bit done, ready for a break. Sometimes we're so used to being in PDs just geared towards our subject area. So I think sometimes it is hard for us to make the connection between something that isn't explicitly for our content area and our content area. So I actually do provide like a list of examples for every subject area. I have like a PE worksheet. I have a a performing arts worksheet. I have a visual arts one, a science, a social studies and English. So I really took the time to try and come up with examples of what this could look like in every area. And I think that the examples are in no way all inclusive, right? Like I have no idea what even half the curriculum is in some of my peers' classes, let alone how to queer all of it. But by helping them even just start making that jump from my conceptual topic to their area of expertise, they then start coming up with all these different ideas. So I think, um, I, you know, I had a math teacher at our last session, and I think I was showing some examples about how math teachers might, um, like, use data to queer some ideas that people have about normative things. And she then goes, you know what, this now has me thinking about how I, like, spend all this time trying to teach pronouns to my ESOL students. And I am wondering about like why I teach them in the way I do. Um, And we came up with this new idea that like she has been like trying to figure out how to teach them what they them pronouns are um, because she's trying to explain to them like about LGBTQ and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, why, why not just like use images like you probably do with so much other stuff and use like the she, her pronouns and the he, him pronouns and the they, them pronouns as if they all are the normal pronouns um, without excluding they, them and saying, these are new pronouns just for people who are LGBTQ. And so she was like all excited to go back and bring that to how she talks about um, her pronouns to newcomers whose, you know, first languages maybe don't use pronouns as much, but that's not even anything to do with math. And she was able to like jump off and make that idea just because she was looking at a math example. So I do think that, you know, even if someone listening to this does PD, that has nothing to do with queer pedagogy. Um, When you are so deep in your own theory, it's so obvious to you that it can be attached to every subject area, but it's, it's not always so obvious to the people who are sitting in your session. And so even starting to ex- make it so explicitly clear to them with at least one example per area you expect to come, I've seen that that really worked. So that kind of, you know, I've been on this learning when Molly's been such a great uh, learning mentor to me to- for some of this. And I came back uh, to Nishi and, and some more of our, our team and be like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring, I'm going to try and replicate all this great learning that Molly's been doing. And she kind of had to slow my roll a little bit because she was like, maybe you should just start with heteronormativity before you go all about queer and everything, which, which I, and I appreciate, you know, that way that you're breaking that down and, and how that could lead to um, some more aha moments and reflections from teachers, because really, yeah, they, them pronouns are not new. Um, like, come on. And so, and I think what was great is like Nishi and I and some of our, our colleagues, we brainstorm a list in which schools really uphold heteronormativity and the ways that we see it play out in classrooms um, every day, all the time. And, you know, most, most people on our team are also other parents. And so just really just getting that reflection going and starting to to see how it plays out every day, how that would impact and kind of spirit murder those you know, young queer kids who, who are hearing that all the time and feeling othered. I think that, you know, just that reflection point could really lead to a lot of change um, 
internally and with, with yourselves and then, you know, externally in, in our work. Yeah. And I think that, um, like you bring up the good point, which I think one of the other things I'm studying in grad school is teacher change. And one of the things that I think a lot of people forget is that you can't, it's probably not best to expect teachers to implement something in their classroom if they still have to do the work themselves. And so expecting teachers to do these lessons where they're allowing students to like deeply challenge um, either heteronormativity or any other sort of normative biases without supporting them and trying to sort of analyze or break down those assumptions that they have themselves is going to be a mess. And so, um, you know, a teacher's need that support and it needs to be more than just one session, but to, to support them in sort of thinking about these topics in their own lives and how they're using their power as an adult in a classroom to continue some of these normative ideas. That's a really important first step before they can necessarily sort of get there with all their students. Molly, I can tell that you're a fantastic teacher because you, well, for the concrete examples that you've given to illuminate your points are so helpful. I can tell that you, you know, you scaffold learning, you're meeting teachers, students, where they are. You're really encouraging um, that self-reflection piece as that entry point into the conversation, which is, like you said, so important. Um, but you're also providing the, the supports that they might need to, to really get them to think about change because change is hard and change can come with its own set of grief, I think, you know, that, that we also have to kind of acknowledge as we, as we try to think about things in a different way. Yeah. And I think this sort of connects back to what you were saying earlier about how queer pedagogy is all about the skills that students are using, that it's okay. Like, I'm not trying to change any student's mind about anything, right? Like they, there's no right answer when you're doing queer pedagogy. Queer pedagogy is all about just like, how can we ask questions to sort of figure out where stuff comes from? And so I teach sociology. So in sociology, we do have like social constructs is a specific topic you have to learn about. That's like one of the cornerstones of sociology. And so one of the social constructs we study is gender. And I always tell the students like, you, you can think whatever you want about gender. You can think whatever you want about how you want to express gender or how people should express gender. But what we're doing here is we're just analyzing sort of where that comes from. And if a student who walks into the room has an idea about how gender should look on different people and they have that same idea at the end, that can be okay. But the big piece we're looking at is, is this student now understanding where that comes from? Are they understanding that these social constructs were created by our whole society? And so an individual in your classroom's response to that might be, okay, it came from all of society and I like how it is. I'm going to keep it that way. But there might be a lot of kids who say, okay, if this comes from society, that means that I can do something to change it. That means that when I say something that's unjust, that we are the individuals who are responsible for making it different because we are society. So I wouldn't want anyone to feel like queer pedagogy is like, you know, telling everybody to be queer. <laughs> it's absolutely not like that. Um, and it, it's just thinking about, are we letting the kids figure out where some of these identities came from? 
Um, and then I, I do think that the next step is asking them, well, what are you going to do about it? But that can be based off of their own conclusions that they've come to based off of these wonderings that they that they sort of developed. And I was, you know, I was going to ask, like, what is the student experience when you're, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, lead, you leading this with teachers and what does it look like with students? And I think um, sometimes I get really frustrated with this, like, we have to go to an equity PD or a culturally responsive PD as if it, there's like this list of things that you have to do. And maybe there kind of is a little bit, but like, I think one of them that we always forget is that that self-interrogation and that self-reflection about what are my beliefs and why do I think that way? Um, and, and just to really to get to get at that, because it's all a social construct, everything that we believe is 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 based on other experiences um, that we've had. So to get into some of that interrogation and, and understand and then act right. And when you see that some of that is because of injustice or um, um, prejudice, like, yeah, what's, what's your next step? So I use the parts perspectives in me thinking routine with my with my students after we did this lesson, looking at sort of gendered clothing over time. And I had students reflecting on the different parts. They were saying, well, in this time period, you know, actually the police were involved in this time period, the government was making laws about it. But now the media has a big impact on what we think we can wear in the perspectives column. They were all sort of reflecting on um, some of the different ways people have been feeling about it. But what I thought was so interesting was that me column. And I had one student who um, didn't have a lot of background knowledge on the topic before we got started. And she wrote a really thoughtful response about how she works at a woman's only clothing store. And she has always just followed the rule that men are not allowed in the store. That's the rule that her boss has set for her. And so she was sort of troubling that a little bit. She was thinking like, when I'm asking someone to leave, how do I know if they're really if they're a woman or not, how do I know if somebody who is maybe transgender really wants to come in and buy some women's clothes? And so she said, I'm going to talk to my boss about that. And I'm going to see like, what, how can we make a rule that makes it so that we still are having sort of our ideals of women being able to shop without, I think it was like, maybe, um, I think maybe they sold lingerie in the store or something like that. And that's why they had that rule. So how do we make it? So it's a space where people are comfortable, but we're also including everybody who wants to be wearing that type of clothes. And so I think that that is one of the best parts when you get to see the students actually sort of considering how it impacts them. And sometimes for me, they just write, I'm still going to, it's like, you know, I'll get a boy who's like, I'm still gonna wear pants. I only want to pants, but other people can wear what they want. And I'm like, great. Like no one, (laughs) the purpose of this was not to get you to wear a skirt. It was just to show you that when we imagine what people should wear, it comes from this long history of, of those being socially constructed ideas. And to go back to your earlier point that those ideas have changed drastically over time as well, based on societal changes that happen. So Molly, what is next for you in this, in this learning journey that you're on? So I think I really want to do a better job of sharing sort of the stuff that we've talked about with more people and more teachers. I know there's so many teachers who want to do right by um, not just their queer students, like all students in your classroom can benefit from this. But a lot of the resources when you go searching for like, how do I be more inclusive? 
that come from these websites, um, like Learning for Justice or um, Rethinking Schools, are still very much focused on that LGBTQ inclusion and thinking about like, okay, you can add these people or add these topics to your existing history units and you'll be adding in more queer voices. And so I think that if we can get some more things out there and more things published that are teaching face teacher facing, we'll get not only more teachers trying it out in their classrooms, but so many more examples of how well this can work and how it might look in different parts of the country. And so I would like to publish one of my articles. I've written a lot for grad school, but I need to do the work now of <laughs> revising and getting it ready to submit somewhere. But I think it would be really cool to sort of take that next step to try and reach a larger audience. Any final words, Molly? Um, well, I just want to thank people. If you like listen to this whole thing, I think you're super rad. Um, cause I know my own voice. I'm like, oh no, am I going to be able to listen to this back? <laughs> I know. I think we're all self-conscious about that, but shout out to people who listen to the whole thing. And, um, I, you've got this, like, I really know that you're ready to start thinking about how you might accidentally be doing some heteronormative stuff in your spaces and start talking about it with some other people. Remember, it's not about are you homophobic, right? It's, we're all good people trying to do best for all the people in our classroom. And I also just want to thank um, Summer and Nishi for the interview. It was fun. And I liked talking to you and I might pay you to interview me a few times a year just so I can feel smart and, <laughs> and have an excuse to talk about the stuff I like. Our learning is payment enough, Molly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I just seeing personally that you have made an impact um, on, on us, on, on my team. Um, so, and I know, you know, being able to see you in action with your teachers in Fairfax, I, you can see it. You can see those wheels turning and um, people asking themselves those questions, which I think is so important. And really, we're, we're thankful for you for asking teachers to ask that question because that's how we get better and that's how we get, um, that's how we do best by kids. Rock on. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's Story of Learning. Let's keep amplifying our voices.